Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. How's PERMA patients? The Federal Reserve holds firm on stimulus. AstraZeneca answers the EU's drug regulator to present its vaccine findings. And Mario's moment, Super Nintendo World opens in Japan. It's Thursday, let's make a move. first move this Thursday where we focus on central banker caution, US-China deliberation and a major EU dosing decision. All of these things, potential drivers of sentiment and the price action today. We are lower pre-market in the United States after the Fed's soothing monetary message strengthened stocks yesterday. We'll call it consolidation, but it's bigger than that. Europe also mixed, but Asia did pick up that baton from yesterday. The Nikkei and the Hang Seng gaining over 1% in the session today. Now known as persistently patient pal, the Fed chair reiterated that they are looking for a complete recovery. So growth upgrades and temporary, as they call it, inflation risks aren't enough to justify reducing or pulling back support anytime soon. Got to remember, the United States still down some nine and a half million jobs since the pandemic began. And the latest jobless data shows 770,000 people filing for first-time benefit claims last week. Still higher, just to give you some perspective, than the worst point of the Great Recession. Just one of the reasons, perhaps, why most Fed members, though not all, and that's important too, believe central banks set rates should stay at rock-bottom levels through 2023. Now, Powell may be patient. Bond investors increasingly impatient. Yields on the rise again today to fresh 14-month highs for that U.S. 10-year yield. They are now, in fact, predicting a hike overall in bond markets in 2023. Tell you what, though, not all central banks have the luxury of patience. Inflation battle-hardened Brazil hiking rates today as prices there rise to four-year highs. Turkey, meanwhile, raising base rates to 19%. Testing times for central bankers, but that nothing compared to the struggle for those that they are aiming to support. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, I have to say, you could have written the script yesterday <laughs> for, for Jay Powell. You could have also written the script for the bond market response, too. I know. Babies in the bond market, right? They're so worried about inflation and higher rates down the road. I would remind everyone that rates are still historically very, very low. But look, the next move is likely going to be an interest rate hike. And that's because the economy is recovering. COVID will be vanquished. Vaccines will do their job eventually. And in fact, Jay Powell, the Fed chief, is, is forecasting for this year, I guess the best economic growth since the 1980s, if it comes true, uh, more than 6% economic growth, which what the Fed is, is, is looking for later uh, this year. So that's the situation at the moment. And we're all kind of adjusting to this, this new reality, a new phase, I would say, right, Julia, a new phase in this fight against COVID. It has been really 52 weeks of just terrible, terrible data. And the Fed chief, Jay Powell, he said yesterday, essentially, until the recovery is real and they can see it right now, they're not changing anything. Listen. We've said that we would um, continue asset purchases at this pace uh, until we see substantial further progress. And that's actual progress, not forecast progress. Actual progress we did not see today in those jobless claims numbers. I mean, 
I find it hard to kind of, you and I both have been covering these weekly numbers, the high-frequency data for months now. A year ago, I don't think I could have imagined that it would be 52 weeks in a row of numbers each week worse than the most painful painful period of the Great Recession. But that is the, that's normality for the American working people. So the Fed stimulus, the American Rescue Plan, which is really skewed to low-income and middle-income working people, these are, I guess, that's the vaccination for the jobs market. We have to see how soon we get some immunity there. Yeah, and this is such a good, important point, I think, Christine, and I think it plays to the uncertainty. Because even as we see those payroll numbers on a monthly basis net adding jobs back. What these numbers suggest to me is a degree of uncertainty, churn. People can register for for these jobless benefits for the first time, even if they don't end up getting them. It just shows that they're afraid of perhaps losing the job or the fear that they're going to lose a lot of hours too. And now we've been 52 weeks in. It is. At 52 weeks in, I mean, there's also the end of a benefit year, which is kind of a technical. I think you're going to start to see some technical noise around these numbers too, which is really important to watch. But now, I mean, our eye has turned to inflation data, hasn't it? And the 10-year bond yield. That's really where the focus has been. Jay Powell says, no, no, my eye is right on the job market still. Yes, exactly. And To go back to the point as well about higher yields as well, if they don't slow the economy down, if they don't upset the stock market, if they don't upset risk taking, then they can rise. And to your uh, first point, um, babies of the bond market, get over it. (laughs) It'd be a good band. We should start a band, Babies of the Bond Market. Exactly. (laughs) Playing at a venue near you. Full of these phrases. I love it. Christine (laughs) Thank you. We're making some enemies as well. Oopsie. All right, let's move on. J-Pow may have the luxury of patience, but some countries where they know the risks of rising inflation, well, they can't wait. Turkey and Brazil hiking interest rates today. John Defteris joins us live with all the details. John, I want to hone in on Turkey specifically. These are countries mm. that know the risks of higher inflation, but there's also a credibility issue as well, perhaps, for Turkey too. If you're going to go, do it in size and show the market that you're not going to mess around. It's a good way to put it, uh, Julia. Sometimes you have to pull out the monetary arsenal, if you will, uh, to rebuild credibility. And that's been in short supply in Turkey. So Naji Abal, who's a former minister of finance uh, years ago, now the new central bank governor, uh, tacked on another 2% after doing so 4 and 3 quarters percent the month before. And we have interest rates hovering at 19%. What I thought was interesting, and to your point that you're alluding to here, uh, that less than a month ago, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the uh, president of Turkey, made a, a plea, a pledge to the Turkish people saying, I'll have two objectives here. Number one is to restore confidence in the Turkish lira, which has been under pressure, down 23% in 2021 alone. And I will put a spear through inflation, which spiked up to 14% last month. I think the target, realistic target, is to try to get below 10%, 9.4%, I think, is their official target by the end of this year. But this is a story that's been going on for a while, Julia. I was on the ground in Turkey on assignment on this story in the summer of 2018. President Erdogan got in a fight with uh, Donald Trump over weapons purchases from Russia, tit-for-tat sanctions, a currency war broke out, and Turkey lost it very badly at the time, and they haven't recovered since. No, absolutely. And it's not just about fighting inflation as well. It's about strengthening the lira, which has lost significant ground as well. Um, I do remember back in the day, though, where this was a president that said hiking rates caused inflation, quite frankly, but clearly that was a bygone era. It's not just a test of the new central banker, though, J.D., as well. It's also perhaps for the president to um, do some clearing out of the Treasury Department. Would you agree or disagree? I 100% agree. He's done some clearing out already, but he was very unconventional 
Uh, to your point, he thought there was an interest rate lobby against Turkey, so he refused to raise interest rates. Around elections, he'd stoke the flames of inflation by uh, boosting spending to get reelected. He always liked growth of 7 to 10 percent at that time. He had two very credible deputy prime ministers who ran economic policy who I knew well, Ali Babajan and then Mehmet Shimshek. Uh, they both have told me on different occasions uh, they really couldn't take that unconventional approach and eventually left. Uh, his biggest mistake, probably, in retrospect, is he appointed his son-in-law, sounds like Donald Trump, doesn't it? Uh, Barack al-Barak as the Minister of Finance, who had no economic experience. And in the two years he sat in that job, he burnt through $130 billion. That's a lot of Turkish lira to try to defend the currency, and that didn't work. There was even hints he was going to bring it back as an energy minister. He has a party congress, which is going to be a big test of what he does on that front. But when it comes to monetary policy, uh, this is the right turn of events and providing that central bank and the Ministry of Finance some independence going forward, Julia. Yeah, at this moment in time with U.S. bond yields rising as well, credibility, everything. John Devteris, thank you so much for that. All right, the U.S. and China holding their first high-level face-to-face meeting under the Biden administration. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to take a tough stance when he meets with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi in Alaska later today. It comes after his visits to key U.S. allies in Asia, Japan and South Korea. And Ivan Watson has been with us every day this week describing those meetings. They've certainly laid the groundwork ahead of this meeting, Ivan. We'll call it an Alaskan chill. I guess the fact that they're even meeting at all is a positive, but expect expectations here pretty low. Yeah, I think both sides, Julia, have been lowering expectations. Since we spoke yesterday, the Chinese ambassador to Washington, who is now in Alaska, he spoke to journalists and said that he doesn't have high expectations for this meeting. Uh, You've heard the White House say that this meeting could be difficult. Recall that uh, the U.S. government imposed sanctions on 24 high-level Chinese officials over uh, claims that Beijing was further eroding Hong Kong's democracy, uh, democratic freedoms and autonomy, and China is firing back, saying it's going to have countermeasures in the works. We still don't know what they are just yet. So you've got that tension there. Uh, That said, the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. uh, said there were some hopes that maybe they could find some common ground, that they could work through some of these differences uh, with dialogue. And both sides do continue to uh, throw barbs at each other. You've had Antony Blinken accusing China of using coercion and aggression. Uh, You've had uh, Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, uh, saying that the goal is to maintain a competitive edge over China, and China in turn accusing the U.S. of violating international norms with these sanctions of interfering with China's internal affairs and taking some stabs over the fact that these American officials have been going around the world meeting with allies in in Tokyo and in Seoul and talking about China. And Biden also uh, talking last week to the leaders of the so-called Quad, India, Australia and Japan, uh, which is being perceived as a a kind of uh, coalition challenging uh, China. Uh, The Chinese ambassador had this to say about that. He said, quote, some people may think that having conversations with other countries before meeting with China may help to put pressure on China. I don't think this move is necessary or useful. It's just like someone who walks alone at night and sings to give himself courage. It actually doesn't help much. Uh, Those are the words of uh, Ambassador Chu Chiang Kai. Back Hmm. to you, Julia. 
I mean, I've seen um, somebody describe this relationship between the US and China as a marriage where both sides want a divorce, but they're staying together for the children. And it, it sort of struck a chord with me, the children in this case being things where China and the United States can't help but have to work together, whether it's on climate change, a huge issue for both sides, particularly prevalent now with Biden administration and the, the, Paris, the Paris Accord. But also things like economic recovery, trade, vitally important that these two countries get on, even if it's an uneasy truce. You're right. Uh, They are still huge trading partners and and still rely on each other, even though there is talk of decoupling the two economies. And I think a big question here is when you have these two diplomats from both uh, governments uh, meeting in Alaska and, you know, it is kind of symbolic that this first face-to-face meeting is taking place on U.S. soil, uh, will they be able to compartmentalize the different agreements? Uh, look back at the Trump administration. He, he triggered a trade war and tariffs. Biden so far has not signaled that he's going to step back from any of those tariffs. Uh, and if anything, he's ramping up pressure on human rights here in Hong Kong and China's record in Xinjiang and in Tibet and its territorial claims in the South China Sea. Uh, can they kind of talk about trade but not talk about human rights? The Chinese ambassador in Alaska uh, was making it clear that uh, there are, is no room for compromise or concessions I don't know if that is kind of bluffing ahead of the meeting or trying to to kind of perform for the domestic audience in China. Uh, And the U.S. side is probably guilty of some of that as well. Julia. Yeah. Political posturing on all sides. But there still has to be a relationship and they have to work together. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for that. The EU now, the European drug regulator, set to announce results of an emergency review of AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine shortly. The European Medicines Agency has been investigating reports of a blood clot in a small number of people who have had the vaccine. Jim Bitterman joins us now. Jim, the medical agency have been pretty clear up to now. They've said, look, the benefits still outweigh the risks as far as this vaccine is concerned. What are we expecting them to say today as a result of this investigation? And I guess the most important part is how do EU nations that have been sporadic in their response then react? Uh, it uh, is going to be something to behold, I think. So the, in fact, uh, this has really been kind of a, uh, a real debacle as far as the Europeans are concerned, rolling out the vaccines and especially AstraZeneca. Uh, this all started a couple of weeks ago when doubt was expressed by Angela Merkel in Germany and by President Macron here in France uh, over whether or not it was effective over the age of 65. Uh, They cast some doubt on the AstraZeneca vaccine. And then uh, in a very sudden move that uh, kind of surprised everybody on Monday, uh, the Germans said they were going to suspend the use of AstraZeneca uh, uh, temporarily until they got some kind of a ruling on this question about blood clots from the uh, European Medicines Agency, which is uh, meeting in an emergency meeting right now. There was a cascade of countries after that, including France immediately thereafter, uh, and other countries who suspended the use of AstraZeneca. It was suspended so quickly that, in fact, some doctors said that they had uh, syringes filled with the vaccine ready to go, ready to inject in people's arms. And, uh, in fact, they had to throw them away because uh, the the government ordered them to be suspended, ordered, ordered the campaign to be suspended at least temporarily. Since then, they've tried to roll this back because 
Here in France, for example, they took a public opinion poll and they discovered that uh, only about 20% of the French had confidence in AstraZeneca after all of this publicity surrounding it. So uh, since then, they've been trying to roll it back from, from what they uh, had on Monday. Uh, on Tuesday night, the prime minister said he was happy with AstraZeneca and he'd be happily, he would happily uh, have himself on TV being vaccinated with it. Uh, and, and the head of the uh, European Commission said the same thing, that she basically felt that uh, she thought it was OK. Uh, so we're expecting the drug agency to rule that it's OK. Um, but in the meantime, the drug skepticism, vaccine skepticism, has only grown in this country and probably in other parts of Europe as well. Julia? Wow, Jim, that was a shocking statistic. Vaccine hesitancy and a reduction in the amount of trust in any vaccine at this critical moment. Um, desperately um, sad to see, quite frankly, particularly at the moment. And I have a minute for you to explain now. We are expecting France, in addition to other EU nations that have already stepped up restrictions this week, France expected to do the same today. Absolutely. That's we're waiting for just two hours after the uh, medicines agency uh, has their press conference. We're getting a press conference from uh, the health minister and the prime minister here. And we're expecting them to talk about new restrictions because the numbers are just exploding in France. They uh, overnight uh, Tuesday night, they had uh, twenty nine thousand new cases and then overnight last night, thirty eight thousand new cases. So the numbers are just really going through the roof in terms of new cases. Uh, this disease is spreading. And I think particularly in the uh, Paris region, and that's what we're expecting to see in this news conference from the French, is that they'll lock down maybe on the weekends um, movements in the Paris region, uh, maybe some parts of the uh, other parts of the country as well. We're not real sure. We'll have to see what the, the prime minister says a little about, uh, well, I don't know, it's about three hours from now. Yeah, Jim, we'll look out for that. Great to get your insights as always and uh, stay safe, please. Jim Bitterman there. You're Thank right. you. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Russia reacting after U.S. President Joe Biden said he thinks Vladimir Putin is a killer. The Kremlin is recalling its ambassador in Washington, saying Mr. Biden's remark about the Russian president is unprecedented, quote, and relations with the United States will be discussed once the ambassador is back in Moscow. More questions surround Tuesday's deadly shootings at three spas in Atlanta, Georgia. Six of the eight people who were killed were Asian women. Investigators say it's too early to know whether the attacks were racially motivated. The Atlanta mayor says it's hard to ignore the fact that the targets were all Asian massage parlors. A man has been charged with four counts of murder and one count of assault. The creative head of Tokyo's Olympics has stepped down after making derogatory remarks about a female performer. Hiroshi Sasaki's departure comes after the president of the Games Organizing Committee also had to resign after making comments many found sexist. All right, still to come on First Move, tire maker Pirelli's plants stay open despite new COVID crises. The CEO on keeping the wheels turning during a pandemic and how Shopify simplified e-commerce and revolutionized retailing. The president of one of the past year's success stories joins us later. Stay with us. That's coming up next. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where the volatility and rate-sensitive technology stocks continues. The Nasdaq 
on target for a drop of more than one and a half percent. All this as 10-year U.S. bond yields rise again on higher growth and inflation expectations. Look at that. The Nasdaq off some 1.7 percent pre-market. Blue chips, though, holding up on a relative basis. The Dow beginning the session still at record highs, soaring past 33,000 for the first time ever in Wednesday's session. Talk about a reversal of fortune. The Dow now the big gainer of all the U.S. majors in 2021 up almost 8% so far thanks to strength in economic reopening stocks. Reopening concerns, meanwhile, persist in Europe. Morgan Stanley today warning that fears of a third COVID wave and slower vaccine rollouts imperil Europe's hopeful summer rebound. Italy tightened COVID restrictions earlier this week. France, as we discussed in the show earlier, is expected to announce fresh lockdowns later today. European industry doing its best to work around the curbs. Italian tire maker Pirelli says sites in both countries remain open. It has experience operating some of the toughest COVID hotspots with 19 plants in 12 countries, including Brazil and China. And joining us now, Marco Tronchetti Brevere. He's the CEO of Pirelli. So fantastic to have you on the show with us. Just talk about your operations, both in hotspots like Brazil and in Italy. How are you managing to remain open despite the challenges? And obviously, how are you protecting your workers? First of all, it's a strict control on temperature, masks, uh, distances, uh, temperature continuous control. And until now, all the factories are open. And uh, even in Brazil, where the situation is getting worse and worse, uh, we continue to, uh, to have a, quite a, a, a good control. The number of people affected by the virus are under control, zero in China, few in, in Europe, and uh, a few hundreds in Brazil. So you're managing, uh, you're managing to manage it. You've also announced that you want to make vaccines available to your workers. It was an announcement made in the last couple of days. What does that mean in practice? How are you going to manage that? Uh, we, we already organise spaces where, where doctors can, can uh, vaccinate people. Uh, we are waiting the authorization from the Lombardia region and Piemonte region where we have our factories, and, and we are ready. So spaces are available. All the chain is under control and uh, doctors uh, uh, in agreement with us uh, from hospitals uh, are ready to, to start. So as soon as uh, we, we have the clearance, we start. But it's voluntary. You're not going to force your employees to take the vaccine if they don't want to. No, 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 no. no. It, it is voluntary. But for the test we made until now, uh, in Italy, a large majority of our employees and workers are ready to be vaccinated. And that's a good sign. All right, let's talk about your business because 2020 was pretty devastating for the entire car industry, wherever you look in the world. And it was already going through a period of disruption, whether it's electric vehicles, uh, ride sharing, electric mobility, automation. Marco, can you give us a sense of what your expectations are for, for 2021? We're seeing recovery in some parts of the world, challenges in others. We, we, we see that um, we, are, we are recovering fast in 2021. China is back on track. Uh, uh, Europe, uh, with some difficulties because uh, uh, of the virus, of the pandemic. But, but uh, there is also in Europe a recovery. US is doing better and better. Uh, Latin America is still weak, uh, and, uh, but we, we expect in a couple of months that also in Europe the situation will improve. And, then and the United also the automotive industry. 
the electrification for us is positive because our technologies uh, uh, are fitting very well with the new requirements of the electric cars. Explain that to me, please, because we've been talking a lot over recent weeks about the development of electric cars, and there's clearly a lot of excitement about the proliferation and the growth of that market in particular. Tyres, given trying to reduce the weight and the pressure or the, the, the effort it requires for the battery to move the car around is also a critical part of reducing the weight of the entire vehicle, I believe. Why are your tyres specifically um, useful in this regard? Our tyres, because we, we have technologies that uh, allow us to produce lighter tyres with a better volume resistance. So that means a reduction in the consumption of energy. And uh, more, more than this, we are also able to uh, cope with the acceleration of the electric cars that they, they go much faster. The torque momentum is more difficult to be handled. And uh, uh, being used to, to work with the high-end cars, we, we are improving with our technologies the performance of electric cars. And more than this, we are introducing sensors inside the tires that are providing information for safety, environment. Uh, we, we launched the first sensor uh, linked to the electronic of the cars with a, a, the new McLaren, the first mm, a car that is full supplied with uh, sensors inside the tires. How do they compare in terms of cost, Marco, relative to ordinary tires? Uh, uh, electric cars, uh, um, the top cars, the difference in price can be around 10-15% because mm -hmm. of technology. When we include also the sensors, obviously the price uh, goes up, but the service, uh, it's very useful for consumers. Absolutely. You announced this month that prices in the United States will be rising by around 7% in tyres. That's the second price increase we've seen in a space of 14 weeks. You think the market can sustain those kind of price increases? And what about the prospect potentially of announcing price increases elsewhere in the world? Uh, well, uh, first of all, it's a must because the raw materials are increasing. Of the course. Prices. prices were very low. Uh, the uh, 2020, uh, the, the market was a very, very, very low level. And so prices went down. Now we are just recovering. There is no, we, we don't see an inflationary effect on this. It's just uh, recovering from the previous reduction and from the raw materials uh, price increase. Ah, okay, good to know. Sir, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your insights and fingers crossed Thank you. for the recovery you, for you were talking time. about. Great to chat to you. Marco Tronchetti Prevera there, the CEO of Pirelli. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are open for trade this Thursday, and it's a tough one for tech already. A reversal from Wednesday's post-Fed gains. Fed Chair Jay Powell assuring investors Wednesday that the central bank is data-driven and will not pull support until we get a complete U.S. recovery, something we don't expect for some time. Powell saying he's not sweating the big moves in the bond market, but today's rise in the 10-year is perhaps catching his eye. It's certainly catching investors' eyes. Look at that. Yields at 14-month highs on expected expectations of higher growth and rising inflation. And unlike the Fed, the bond market reacting fast to the changing economic landscape. That growth optimism evident in just-released U.S. factory numbers too. Manufacturing growth in the Philadelphia region now at a 50-year high, more than doubling this month alone. 
Now, for evidence of the e-commerce boom, look no further than Shopify, the platform for web stores. It's reporting jaw-dropping revenue growth of 86% in 2020. Shopify now has 1.7 million sellers, representing 40% of the total value of goods sold on Amazon's third-party marketplace. Wow. That makes it the largest provider of software and services for merchants to run their own online stores. And Harley Finkelstein is president of Shopify. Wowzers, Harley. Great to have you with us. Those are some stunning numbers. And I think it's evidence of the fact that lots of small and medium-sized businesses recognized last year that they needed to be online during the pandemic. And a lot of them came to you for help. Yeah, they did. Thanks for having me, Julia. Uh, it's actually, I mean, there's a lot obviously to be anxious about in terms of being in the middle of a global pandemic, but there's also a lot to be optimistic about. And I think that everyone, you know, one year, uh, almost to the day post the pandemic starting, I think everyone wants to know what does the future of retail and commerce look like? And I think the 1.7 million merchants and the brands on Shopify, but more generally independent and direct to consumer brands in general uh, will establish the blueprint for that future. And so it's actually from a retail perspective, it's a very interesting time to watch consumer behavior shift and watch consumers vote with their wallets to support these local independent brands. I've seen um, Shopify described as arming the rebels. Um, Mm. And you mentioned it with this enabling independent retailers to survive in what is an incredibly challenging time. It's an time of a great opportunity too, um, to your point, but also a, a challenging time when so many people flood to big players like Amazon, for example. Do you see yourselves as arming rebels? Yeah, in many ways, I think the big marketplaces are trying to build these empires. And so if you use that metaphor, then what Shopify is doing is trying to give the rebels or the small businesses the same tools. Remember, for a very long time, independent entrepreneurs just did not have access to very simple things like building a very beautiful, scalable online store. They didn't have access to payment rates or capital or shipping and fulfillment services. And so what's what's something that is missed about the Shopify story is that if you were to think about Shopify as a retailer, Uh, just for a moment, we're not a retailer, but pretend we were for a moment, you would realize that we are the second largest online retailer in America. The reason I I, I use that that, that analogy and that example is because when you are the second largest retailer in America, you, you get these massive economies of scale. But instead of keeping those economies of scale for ourselves, we actually get to disseminate them to those entrepreneurs or small businesses so that the rates they get on shipping and payments, we've given up more than $1.7 billion worth of capital, their ability to do two-day affordable shipping. We can help them do that. And so now that the supply side, you have these independent retailers having this incredible scalable online experience and offline experience, you also have the demand side where consumers are saying, well, we prefer to buy from independent retailers. And that's why you see companies like Allbirds and Bombas and, and Loungewear and, and Tommy John Underwear and Beyond Yoga start on Shopify, very, very small businesses, and grow to be category leaders in a time span that is super short relative to retail the last couple hundred years even. Yeah, it just expands the marketplace so dramatically when you can sell online. I mean, you're operating now in, well, you're you're powering businesses in more than 175 different countries. And to your point about being effectively the second largest retailer in the United States, it's why I wanted to make that point about the scale versus what Amazon um, is doing in terms of their, their marketplace. You're huge. What are you seeing internationally and what are the opportunities for growth in some of the international markets too? Can you get to the same kind of relative scale that you have in the United States, do you think? 
Yeah, so let's talk about the international market. So first of all, what are they buying? So international consumers, we have watched them in 2020 and even into 2021 shift their behaviors in the pandemic in response to the stay-at-home orders. I'm now talking to you from Canada. We are in code red right now. There's a curfew in place mm. in Canada and in some provinces. And so we very much are still in the pandemic. But from what they're buying, we see in places like France, sales of mobile phone cases uh, are, are uh, were actually down more than 650%, whereas lotion and moisturizers are up more than 90%. In Germany, we've watched watch sales, uh, like watches, decrease by about 120%, where hair products rose more than 220%. In Japan, earring sales have increased more than 1,100%, where pants sales have decreased more than 130%. So that's sort of what they're buying. Let's talk about sort of how they're buying. They, they are buying unequivocally more than ever before from these independent direct-to-consumer brands. Half the consumers that we surveyed tell us that they look for independently-owned businesses to support because they want to support entrepreneurs entrepreneurship. They want to buy unique products, but they also want to support their local economies. And whenever possible, consumers are choosing to shop at a locally owned business because they believe that will strengthen the economy. It's going to help create job. Uh, it'll help support job creation. And they believe in investing in their community. And the end result for Shopify is that we have actually seen triple digit growth in new store creations in places like the UK, where we have 106% growth, Germany, 126% growth, and Japan, more than 228% growth on Shopify. So again, when we talk about arming the rebels and getting those independent brands to compete with the largest of retailers, that's only happening. It's happening at a disproportionate rate and consumers are voting with their wallets to support that change. Do you think that's sustainable even post pandemic? Because this is, I mean, for so many reasons, fascinating, this idea that consumers have shifted their behavior, but they are trying to support local domestic businesses. Um, do you think that continues after the pandemic? I don't as, think as, yeah. Yeah, so two things will continue. One is this idea of omni-channel is no longer going to be a fad. If you're going to be a great... Uh, brand that's going to have longevity, that's going to be important in the future of retail, you have to sell wherever your consumers are. And so the reason that Shopify is becoming more of a retail operating system, as opposed to just an e-commerce provider is, we want to help merchants sell from Shopify on places like Instagram and Facebook and Walmart.com and Pinterest and anywhere which are sort of the digital main streets or the digital town squares of the future. So that is not going away. But the second thing is this appetite from consumers to buy direct, that's not going away. The reason reason consumers did not initially buy direct from these independent brands was it wasn't that convenient. So for example, the idea of one-click checkout, which was so you know proprietary to, to these big marketplaces, that's available on Shopify with ShopPay, which we know is now 2x as fast, excuse me, 4x as fast, and converts 2x's as well as a regular checkout. So by giving the tools that traditionally only the biggest companies and the biggest brands can afford to small businesses, you really do level the playing field. And here's something else that's really neat. What we saw during the <laughs> pandemic was, a lot of bigger brands like Heinz Ketchup or Lindt Chocolate or Schwinn Bicycles, they also came to Shopify and began acting more entrepreneurial. And in the in some cases, for the first time in the history of these century-old companies, they started selling direct-to-consumer as well. So there is no going back. Direct-to-consumer will be a mainstay and will be the future of retail. This is so fascinating. I always come up with some questions that I want to ask before an interview, and I abandoned them all because what you were saying was just taking me off in completely different directions. Harley, come back oh, I'm sorry soon. About that. Yeah. No, no, I love it. Come back soon because we're, we're going to talk again. Um, there's loads more to discuss, but fantastic to have you on the show and to, um, to see what you guys are doing. And I have to say, evidence of the fact that I was never effectively locked down is I went through four phone cases in the last um, <laughs> year. <laughs> that drop was quite fascinating too, Harley. Great to have you on. Thank you so much and Thank you, congrats Julie. on what you're doing. Carly Finkelstein there, the president of Shopify.
All right, coming up after the break, who can resist a trip to the Mushroom Kingdom, where they're serving up cartoon food that you can actually eat. Selena Wang tries out everything on offer at the new Super Nintendo World in Japan. We're there next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. It's cost half a billion dollars to build and suffered multiple delays because of the pandemic. But now the doors of Super Nintendo World at Universal Studios in Japan are finally open with plenty of safety measures, of course. Selena Wang has been road testing the attractions and trying out the food, which I saw on social media and was very excited, Selena. All the toughest jobs. Tell us more. Julie, yes, it was an exceptionally fun and special topic to be covering, especially during these COVID times. And honestly, at opening day today, there was so much energy and excitement that even with the masks and COVID-19 measures, it kind of felt like a pre-pandemic time sort of atmosphere. I spoke to a lot of the attendees who had been playing these Nintendo games since they were kids, and some of them even said that they felt emotional as they were walking into this life-size creation of the Mushroom Kingdom. Now, this theme park was supposed to open last year ahead of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Of course, both have been delayed by about a year. And it was expected, along with the Olympics, to drive an influx of tourism to boost economic activity. But capacity limits are limited inside the Super Nintendo theme park. And Osaka State of Emergency here was only recently lifted. While COVID cases in Japan have fallen from peak levels, they are still dealing with a growing number of coronavirus case variants from abroad. And vaccinations in Japan, quite frankly, have been very slow. But Julia, None of that dampened the excitement at the theme park today. Here we go, entering Super Nintendo World through the warp pipe. Follow me. And here we are, a life-size replica of Nintendo's most popular games. You've got Yoshi's Adventure, Bowser's Castle, and Peach's Castle, and all the iconic characters. After nearly a year-long delay because of COVID-19, this theme park in Osaka's Universal Studios Japan is finally open to the public. We're getting a sneak peek before the big crowds come in. But this is how things look during COVID. Your temperature is taken at the entrance. Hand sanitizer is everywhere. Masks are required at all times except for in mask-free zones. Konnichiwa, konnichiwa. So I can interact with Mario and Luigi, but there are rules against touching. And one of the few places in this whole park where I can take my mask off are in this photo op area with Mario and Luigi. And actually on the ground here, there are markers to prove that I need to be a certain distance away from them. So I am being socially distanced from Mario and Luigi. Park officials say that this all cost about half a billion dollars to construct and more than six years to develop. Now, the gaming industry and Nintendo especially got a big boost during the pandemic as more people were stuck at home inside playing Nintendo games. Games have become real life in this park. The whole park is interactive. You can even compete against other people here. And just like in the Mario video games, I've got this power up band on my wrist and I can just punch up on these blocks and I get points in the Mario app on my phone. And this is what many fans are most excited about, Koopa's Challenge, a real-life Mario Kart race through Bowser's Castle. All right, I'm about to get on a real-life Mario Kart ride. Got to put on the augmented reality headset here. Clip it in. All right, let's go. 
The augmented reality headset got a little bit of getting used to, but I was racing through the Mushroom Kingdom next to Princess Peach, Mario, and Luigi. I'm not great at the video game version of Mario Kart. I think I might have fared slightly better than the real life version. For Nintendo, this is an important step beyond its core business of video games and consoles. It's cashing in on its treasure trove of intellectual property and iconic characters here in the store and in the restaurant. Canopio's Cafe, we're here in the Mushroom Kingdom and mushroom themed food is everywhere. It looks like cartoon food, but it's edible. She told me when I saw all this, I got emotional. I've been playing Nintendo games since I was small. It's not exaggerating to say that Mario games raised me. This is all beyond my expectations, she told me. I feel like I'm in the Mario world. I get worried about COVID when I take off my mask to eat, she said, but the park is taking safety protocols, so I feel safe. Japan's borders are still closed, so international travelers aren't allowed in this park yet. But there are plans to open Super Nintendo World in Florida, California, and Singapore. Mario creator Shigeru Miyamoto says he wants the whole world to come visit when the pandemic is over. It was a joyous celebration today, but this opening does come as the global theme park industry is struggling and as parks around the world are opening in a patchwork. In fact, plans to open Super Nintendo World in Orlando have reportedly been delayed until 2025. But what we are seeing here, analysts say, is a transition for Nintendo from a video game company into an entertainment one, taking a page out of Disney's playbook. Now, earlier today, I also spoke to the CEO of Universal Studios Japan and asked him what Nintendo game he plans to bring bring to life next. He didn't give any specifics, but did say they, they are continuing to invest in the park. And it's also worth mentioning that a Comcast executive recently said that Nintendo is one of the biggest drivers of attendance, potentially of any intellectual property up there with Harry Potter, predicting wow. that this Super Nintendo world is going to be a big driver for its theme park business. Julia? Fantastic. So much in there. And it looked like you were having a lot of fun. Did you actually try the food? I'm really preoccupied with this. Did you actually try that food? Okay, so that big table of food you saw, I did not get to try all of the food, but I did get to try some of the mushroom-shaped burger, which was pretty good, and the block tiramisu. It was pretty delicious. Oh, and I must not forget, there was a very sweet star jelly drink I had too. So a very difficult day indeed, Julia. When it, when it opens up in the United States... The jelly drink, it's all about that jelly drink. And the hedgewear as well. There's some of those people wearing the false moustache. Love it. <laughs> Selena, great job. Thank you so much for it that. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. All right, coming up on First Move, as Europe awaits the results of AstraZeneca's vaccine review, how countries in Asia are handling the vaccine rollout. Full details next. Welcome back to First Move. As we await news from the European drug regulator on its review of the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine, many nations across Asia aren't hesitating across much of the region. They're continuing to use the vaccine, including in Thailand, India, Cambodia and the Philippines. The AstraZeneca vaccine also plays a critical role in COVAX, the vaccine program aiming to have 2 billion doses available in 2021 for developing nations. Kim Brunhuber has all the details. To the sound of snapping cameras, Thailand's Prime Minister becomes the first person in the country to get AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine. His shot in the arm kicks off its use across the nation. I've been ready to get vaccinated for quite a while. I'm thankful for all the medical staff who've been working to get the vaccine for the Thai people. 
Today, I'm boosting confidence in the vaccine for the general public. Thailand is continuing AstraZeneca's rollout after a brief pause following European reports of bleeding, blood clots, and low platelet counts found in a small number of those who received the vaccine. While it's been suspended in more than a dozen EU countries, most of Asia seems to be deeming it safe. Indonesia is the region's only nation to say AstraZeneca's vaccine is currently suspended. But from Thailand to India to South Korea to Australia, vaccination campaigns continue in the fight against coronavirus. In any large vaccine rollout, we do expect to see um, uh, uh, unusual events and we monitor very closely and carefully for those. But this does not mean that an event that happens after vaccination has been given is indeed due to that vaccine. Um, So we do always take it seriously. We do investigate. Um, But in this situation, I can absolutely say that I remain confident in the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, that it's safe. AstraZeneca, meanwhile, is doubling down on the safety of its vaccine. It says that of the 17 million people vaccinated in the EU and the UK so far, blood clots were, quote, much lower than would be expected to occur naturally in a general population. The World Health Organization said in a statement Wednesday that it believes, quote, the benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine outweigh its risks. That may be especially true in countries like India, where COVID deaths continue to rise. In a pandemic that's claimed more than two and a half million lives worldwide. And the update from regulators due 11 a.m. Eastern time. So we'll be watching for that. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages in the coming hours. Search for at Chichatterly CNN. In the meantime, stay safe and connect the world. Who's next? Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.